Good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Colin Hamilton from BMO Capital Markets. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, with the Politburo meet, uh, meeting, mid-year meeting uh, just having passed, it's really a pivotal point for the, the Chinese economy at the moment. I thought it would be a good time to get uh, uh, Will Hess and Song Gao from uh, PRC Macro in just to talk through uh, how Chinese, China's economy is doing when we're seeing a bit of a cyclical slowdown, maybe accelerating in the past little while. Uh, there is slides for the call today. Um, you don't have to do anything. They will move on automatically. There is also a Q&A box available where you can uh, type in your questions and we will address them after the prepared remarks. Um, with that, Will, can I hand over to you to, to give some uh, opening remarks on how you're seeing the uh, Chinese economy at the moment. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much, Colin, and thanks to you and BMO, uh, BMO for organizing today's call. Um, so, as we all know, as you've mentioned, the Politburo in China just concluded its annual mid-year meeting on the economy last week, uh, and the communique issued after that meeting is usually, you know, seen as an important guide for policy in the next six months. Uh, in this case, you know, some of the policy language and the focus was really about smoothing growth across cycles, or in, in terms of the, the policy language, doing a good job of managing growth in the next couple of years. And so this means whatever they said last week was also applicable to 2022 as well. Of course, while it can change between now and the end of this year, it's heading into 2022. But um, in any case, that's the, the time horizon they seem to be working with. Um, today, so today, Song is going to run through some of the major impacts uh, from this Politburo meeting, including uh, rethink on the decarbonization agenda, the outlook for the property sector, and some others. Uh, but before passing over to him, I wanted to provide some some context about where we think activity levels are and where we think they're going from here, partly in response to these these overall policy signals. So uh, I think, in short, our view is that the downside risks are much larger than the Politburo, and for that matter, the PBOC or other technocratic agencies are letting on. Um, and so in its communique, the Politburo made a statement about checking political, political campaign-style decarbonization, and so which means preventing blind production cuts where it comes to emissions and kind of blind investment where it comes to renewable energy. So in other words, this is about preventing policy overshooting. So it doesn't lead to policy moves, either good or bad, where it comes to a growth perspective from being wasteful, symbolic uh, political gestures. So I think we have to give the Politburo some credit for acknowledging that. This, and in the past, was something that they, they haven't done. Uh, and so they, they really do seem to want to put more substance behind phrases like high-quality growth. Um, at the same time, I think there are two other areas where the same kind of politi uh, political campaign-style agendas are underway that also have a very big impact on growth, and those are local government deleveraging and effective fiscal austerity uh, and the, the property sector. So these are obviously related. They're linked by land sales. Uh, there's also Delta COVID, and we need to control it, and, and we'll get to that. So in all cases, you know, the risks of policy overshooting are, are more detrimental to growth uh, than they have to be. Where it comes to local government fiscal austerity, uh, local officials remain highly risk-averse because of the risks to their careers from bad debt uh, and the overall political incentives are telling them to exceed guidance from Beijing where it comes to debt controls and managing defaults. And so at the, at the end of the day, that means weaker infrastructure investment. So local government deleveraging is looking exactly like the kind of political campaign style um, activity that the Politburo wants to prevent where it comes to decarbonization. And so this means the fiscal impulse is going to be weak. Uh, and so the Politburo raised hopes that this will change, but we don't really buy it. I think the main reason why has to do with the sources of incremental funding and expenditure growth for the overall fiscal impulse. Uh, and so if you look at three, for example, special purpose local government bonds, LGFD bonds, and government fund, fund expenditure, which is linked uh, funded by land sales. Um, if we look at the incremental contribution to net new spending from these categories, and these are the major uh, the major sources. 
since 2015, there's a very clear winner, uh, and it's not even close, and that is government fund expenditure, again, linked to land sales. And so this is negative territory this year. Property uh, activity and land sales are falling. That also means that the fiscal impulse is weakening. So whatever the policy bureau does on the positive side, to accelerate uh, issuance and spending of local government special purpose bonds, it's going to be offset by by this kind of land channel. And so that, that's one thing that I think to keep in mind when, when trying to interpret what kind of policy impulse is going to come out of the Politburo. Uh, and so there's only one time in recent memory when this has occurred, and that was 2015. So uh, although to be fair, you know, the cyclical indicators that we run for China are not yet showing the kind of downside acceleration that took place in 2015, uh, but that said, we think the risks are, are material. So, of course, you have to add in Delta COVID, um, which, which is a, a new variable for the growth outlook in China and also for the policy response uh, outlook. Um, you know, new, new case levels are very low compared to the U.S., but what's interesting is that this seems to be another area where local officials have very, very strong political incentives to overshoot where it comes to lockdowns, and, and, and that's net activity reducing, of course. So we, we already see signs that's underway. Um, so I'll just put, leave that as context and close by saying that uh, we think the downside risks are very real. And just in part because of the kind of overshooting in other areas that officials want to avoid where it comes to decarbonization. Um, so with that, I'll turn over the song uh, to talk about de the decarbonization agenda and uh, what this outlook means for uh, metal demand. So, song over to you. Yeah, thank you, Will. So, well, uh, one of the biggest methods from uh, the Policy Bureau meeting uh, last last Friday was actually about the uh, uh, the Policy Bureau is saying that they're going to backpedal from the current political movement style of decarbonization at local government at a local government level. Uh, because well officials have realized that from the central government have have realized that there has been excessive speculation at local level and market at capital markets about you know uh, very ambitious steel and coal production cuts. Uh, and the resulting policy overshooting has been causing this is kind of roller coaster type of press movements for steel and for, for coal. So they are, so now they're very much uh, aware of this and, uh, you know, we are actually expecting that in to have this year there's going to be a major reversal or pause to the decarbonization campaign because at the policy bureau they said, well, we need to first set up targets and rules. Then we'll begin to implement actual steel production costs. So at this point, uh, what they're saying basically is that we don't have uh, a clear targets yet. Right? That's why we cannot really move on a very excessive production costs when you don't have targets. So that means, you know, before the end of this year, we're going to have a target for next five years uh, decarbonization. And that means, you know, only production costs will only really take uh, much effect starting from next year. So that's why, you know, that's why, you know, a, even market participants in China onshore are pretty confused by the policy bureau call. You can see uh, people are speculating that, you know, uh, officials are not going to be uh, uh, committed to a steel production cuts and the coal production cuts this year. And that's why that has been uh, really uh, uh, put a downside pressure on rebar prices. But uh, just yesterday, there's some officials from NDLC cannot clarify that. Uh, I mean, they still have this steel production cost targets in mind, but at the same time, uh, they, they will actually suspend production costs for, uh, for coal production. So, well, you know, I think in the next two or three months, this kind of market confusion, you know, will 
come, you know, we'll come back and forth. But my personal view at this point that uh, there will be still a few production costs for this year, but actual targets for production costs will not be as, as ambitious as previously announced by officials, which, you know, back in March, they're saying we're not going to have a production growth for steel, but in the first half of this year, they probably have still the targets. Uh, very, uh, very valid because in the first half of this year, we're over 10% year year growth for steel production. So they will try to curb steel production in the second half of this year, but I think, uh, the target to, uh, the target for having no growth for the whole year for steel production is a little bit too ambitious and a little bit, uh, impractical. Okay. But, but for, for thermal coal, uh, that's just a, a very different story because uh, they have determined that they're going to uh, uh, increase uh, thermal coal production in China. Uh, just in the middle of July, uh, their, uh, their teams from, from NDRC actually went to visit uh, Shanxi province and Inner Mongolia provinces, which, two, which are two provinces that experienced the habit production cuts in the first half of this year. And uh, NDRC officials have renewed production permits for some uh, uh, suspended mining uh, mining sites. So this will be, so that means, you know, uh, in the second half this year, we're going to see there is a recovery of uh, coal production in China. But you know, the question is, how much coal production we can actually resume while we open, right? Uh, based, on, uh, based on our knowledge that NDRC officials, when they went to Mongolia, you know, Mongolia, what they are going to do is that they're going to uh, uh, open up Around like uh, 70 million coal production in uh, in 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 which is only account for like two percent of of annualized national coal production. So this is a still a very small amount of coal production, actual coal uh, additional coal production uh, for China's uh, coal demand. Uh, well, you know that's actually leads to a very interesting uh, investment theme. You know, when I look at the chart, this chart is basically is Chinese power demand and Chinese uh, power generation by different, uh, you know, by, by different components, right? So there's there's two things that I want to highlight here. That first of all, you see there is a great change of uh, power generation by Chinese uh, corporate households, uh, which is every November December, you can see a much higher peak of power demand because you know when Chinese getting richer. Uh, in central southern part provinces in China, you know, people begin to use more uh, U.S. years. and that's where we put a lot of the natural gas and uh, and a power consumption. So you see now it's basically become a, a chronicle shortage for power, especially for every December. Actually, uh, December January, we have a, we have experienced chronicle shortage of power since uh, 2019. Okay, and this probably will not go away this year because we see also on the chart that. Every time after October, we're going to have this drop season for hydropower. Okay, and the re other renewable energies are not sufficient, are not big enough to uh, provide, you know, the, uh, uh, the additional power demand. So, but at the same time, you see there's no basically flat capacity for thermal power generation, you know, through, uh, in the winter. So, what's going to happen is that every winter in China, we're going to ha we're going to have a shortage of. Uh, of power supply, okay, because that uh, because we don't have enough hydropower, we don't have enough renewable uh, other renewable energy, and uh, thermal thermal uh, uh, power plant generation is basically flat uh, throughout the winter. So 
That means for this this November or December, you know, I'll be really bullish on natural gas and on and on thermal coal. But for next two or three months, you know, I'll be more bearish with the thermal coal because uh, apparently officials have, have determined that they're going to reopen some uh, some uh, uh, some old mines, so they're going to in- increase domestic production. You know, for for steel, just quick on steel. You know, like I said. People are struggling with you know, whether or not officials want to have a steel production cost or, or not, right? But at this point, my view is that officials will still push for steel production cuts, okay? Uh, well, this happens against a background, like we'll mention that. The Chinese cyclical uh, growth is actually turning into a slowdown uh, uh, stage. So the downstream demand, especially from the public sector for rebar, has been falling, and I think uh, will begin to fall more rapidly. Okay, so this will put a downside pressure on on rebar prices, but more importantly, I think that will you know if steel production cost is going to happen, and also when you have a, 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 a weak downstream demand for steel, especially coming from private sector, this will have much enduring and damaged impacts on iron ore prices. I think this is consistent with the Chinese official view that they want to uh, to uh, to put delta pressure on iron ore prices. Okay, so this is a so I'm a very bearish. I'm pretty bearish on on, on iron ore prices, and uh, I'm also a little bit more bearish on on steel. Okay, uh, so this is a uh, this is a uh, uh, the first slide, and on the next slide, you know, I just plus. The 14 fire plan targets for uh, for non fossil fuel consumption. My point is that in the long term, although policy bureau uh, is now calling for a suspension of decarbonization drive, but in the long term, their target for China to diversify from uh, fossil fuel uh, is unchanged. Okay, so they want to cut the weight of uh, uh, of coal consumption over China's total energy consumption uh, to uh, to, uh, to around 57% by the year of 2025, okay? This target will remain unchanged. But there's a tricky part because over time, Chinese consumption demand will still be growing, okay? So at some time, although you have a lower share of, uh, of, of coal, some of the coal for, for your energy consumption, but Chinese will continue to consume more, more thermal coal in the next five years. We did ask me that in the next five years, uh, Chinese demand for thermal coal will still grow by five percent. Okay, so that's just a that's a fact. I think this is not a speculation, or this is not uh, some kind of a official uh, 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 constructed theory to cut uh, coal consumption. China's coal consumption will continue to grow, and, and even with with continuous growth of coal consumption, China can meet its uh, its target uh, to reduce its reliance on uh, on thermal coal. So well now on the next slide, I just want to briefly touch on this is uh, you know, the recent drama about Chinese tech company. Well, there's a lot of, of course, there have been a lot of uh, policy incentives behind this this uh, crackdown, uh, you know, on Chinese tech companies listed overseas. But I'll say there's two things that are most important. First one is you can see there is a complete reversal. Of uh, two decades commercialization of Chinese public se- public service sectors. Okay, uh, well back in back in year 2000, the Chinese government actually commercialized three public service sectors: 
helping education and healthcare. Now, other two decades growth for those uh, for those sectors. Now they have changed their mind because we we now they feel like those commercialization of those sectors have been contributing to social inequality in China. President Xi made very clear as the party's centennial speech is that for me, the next five years, the most important thing is not about efficiency. It's about social equality. Okay, so he sees housing, education, healthcare are most important part of you know for his target to to improve China's social equality. That's why those sectors has been a particular target by the Chinese regulatory crackdown. But there's another part of his his campaign that President Xi is very uh, is a conservative person, right? So he's you know he's very much worried about this so-called corrupted moral values in China, uh, especially uh, the uh, corrupted moral values ha which has been promoted by uh, by large tech companies. So. He's, he's another part of regulatory crackdown will be on any sectors related to uh, large tech companies that have been contributing to uh, the deterioration of Chinese moral values. So in this case, you know, short video uh, uh, streaming uh, companies and uh, online gaming companies, they're all part of these uh, regulatory crackdown targets. Okay, so I think everyone needs to have this in mind. But, but Another issue with the crackdown on large tech company, I think the fundamental part is about this, uh, you know, uh, enduring competition between U.S. and China. You know, now the Chinese officials realize that this is not about trade, this is not about economic issues, this is about a more comprehensive strategic competition. Okay, so the coupling of U.S. Chinese U.S. China capital markets is a very important uh, part of. Presidency's strategy to you know to boost China's competitiveness against the U.S. and to uh, to close all the loose ends you know uh, which made China's Chinese companies or Chinese uh, domestic security uh, vulnerable to U.S. aggression. So I think w when we talk about the Chinese regulatory crackdown, besides social equality and moral values, I think we should not overlook. The overall context that this is a part of the Chinese long-term part, uh, long-term U.S.-China competition. Okay, so U.S.-China capital market de decoupling. This is a real. This is going to happen. This is going to accelerate, and uh, you know we're going to see more. So let uh, let let's turn to the next slide. Well, so in this part, I want to uh, uh, talk about property slowdown. Uh, uh, well, first of all, you know I want to talk about what's happening. Uh, in Chinese property market. Okay, the second I will talk about, this is probably a slowdown. It's going to drive uh, Chinese manufacturer to uh, to a de-stocking cycle, which means the current cycle of expansion is going to end around November, December this year. And after that, we're going to see Chinese manufacturer begin to uh, uh, embark on more active de-stocking. I think that's a negative authority for this metal uh, uh, in general. And uh, you know we have to be uh, very uh, uh, mindful with this risk. Okay. So first of all, you know what you know what we can probably market. Of course. Uh, the first question is, 
you know, world regulators back off from this uh, property tightening because they expected the economic slowdown. My short answer is no, absolutely not. I think this officials are unapologetic about this tightening on problem market. Okay, they're tightening actually happening uh, on uh, on three parts along the supply chain of problem market. First of all, is they're tightening the land market. They're capping how much developers can spend money to purchase land, which is the cap 40%. Uh, developers can only spend 40% of their last year's sales to, uh, to use, uh, 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 to purchase land, okay? Uh, this is a basically as a shock to local government revenue, uh, for sure. You know, we did, we did ask me that you know, this will actually create 70, 70% a shortage, uh, a deficit, uh, well, uh, revenue shortage. For local garments from uh, you know from land sales, so you know when you face a 17% shortfall from your revenue and uh, all the local garments, you have to be more careful with your you, you know with your spending. So that's why you know we're not very enthusiastic about uh, infrastructure investments that can happen this year because the fact is clear. Like Will mentioned, local fiscal austerity is there. Okay, it's not going to go away. Then the second part of their tightening up public market is that. They're tightening developers' financing from all fronts, right? As you know, we have a three red line, which is targeting at uh, uh, developers' uh, uh, financial leverage. And uh, also now in China, central government has introduced more restrictions about how developers can use dumping the money, can tap into mortgage loans, and actually can use deferred lend payments to finance their own, their own operation. Okay. We have uh, centralized uh, land purchase money into tax bureau from local governments, away from local governments. And uh, as a result, you know, developers can no longer use deferred land payment to finance their own, uh, uh, their own operations or future land purchase. So this will, so this has and will continue to contribute to a further decline of land purchase. Okay. Because in the last two years, well, last three years, developers have used deferred land payment to make future land purchase, okay? So this is not going to happen in the future. And also now, developers require that all the down payment money has to be put into cost accounts, okay? So developers have no way to tap into uh, those funds. Uh, we have several local governments have filed lawsuits against developers that who have been tapping into that money, especially uh, with Evergrande, which is the largest private uh, developer in China. And the third part, you know, what they're doing is that they're also tightening how developers can use mortgage money, okay? Uh, because in the past, well, although Chinese law requires that developers can only tap into mortgage, mortgage loans after they complete the apartments. But in the past, no one really enforced that law. But now, all the local governments have been enforcing this law, which means developers can only complete the apartments, then they can tap into mortgage loans, okay? This will further, this, well, this will further tighten the uh, developer's financing condition. So, this no doubt that they will no, they will not back off from this, uh, uh, financial tightening on developers and uh, on, on land markets. Okay. So that's why the first, well, the immediate impacts we're going to see is that you're going to see continuous decline of land sales, right? And you're going to see when land sales is basically coincidental indicator with, uh, with the housing new starts. So, with you know with a slowdown in land sales, then you're gonna see a slowdown in new starts. We already see the number from July from June, July. You see a 
uh, uh, deceleration of the line sales growth and new starts growth. That will trickle back to the demand for rebar in China. Okay, so that's just a that's something that officials will not back on. Okay, but as I mentioned, you know, uh, you know, as a as a macro strategist, you know, we're more focused on uh, a, a macro story, which is you know, slowdown in probably market. This will affect the entire supply chain. Okay, and uh, this will drop for uh, active destocking from Chinese manufacturer. Uh, we are expecting that. This will happen in, uh, as early as November and December this year. Uh, the expansion cycle is going to be over. Okay. So now, uh, well, just on the next slide, we have uh, uh, two charts. You know, I just want to point out there's some interesting indicators that you can use to track Chinese new stars or just make predictions of Chinese housing new stars. The first one is uh, activator sales. That is a great coincidental indicator with uh, housing new stars and what we've been seeing. That has been falling from the peak. And also, you know, uh, I mentioned that line sales is coincidental indicator to new stocks. You can also see that both, both, both indicators are actually been falling, uh, suggesting further slowdown in the housing market. And this, this slowdown in the housing market, this cycle, uh, will actually run through the entire next year. Okay. Land market probably will rebound back in 2023 because uh, this is basically uh, a short lunch. Uh, land market cycle in China, um, but uh, for housing new starts, you know, this is uh, uh, there are this is a this is a more long term negative story. But there is a little bit short term positive spin, and I'll talk about that later. Okay, so now let's turn to the next slide. You know, this is a this is something that I want to talk about is a current event happening in China, which has been not. Being attracting a lot of attention from uh, you know from investors outside China, but I think this will have these two events will have significant uh, impact on uh, on China's economic growth in Q3 and uh, maybe even beyond Q3 to Q4. Okay, so first one is this is a very flawed in Henan province. Okay, Henan province is a very important province in China. It's is is actually eight eight percent of Chinese coal production, fifteen percent of Chinese pork uh, pork production, 30% of Chinese wheat production, uh, and 24% of Chinese pork production. And this, is a, this is a huge, very populated province. And of course, then, you know, we have a we have very, uh, very bad flood, and the death toll has exceeded 500. Uh, you know, by our estimate, this will affect the Chinese GDP, non-GDP growth by 0.2% to 0.25%. Well, right now, I think probably, you know, somewhere around 0.3%. 0.4% probably be more realistic, but my point is that this will have a significant impact on Chinese nominal GDP growth. Uh, then, but of course, uh, you know, a flood is not always negative. It's negative in short term, but it's normally growth neutral in the long term. Okay, so in Q4, we're going to see some rebuilding efforts, which will be positive, uh, you know, for economic growth. So, one of the Recovery, especially for infrastructure uh, rebuilding, will co normally contribute 0.2% to 0.6% of the infrastructure investment. But, you know, the difference is that you can see the economic losses or damage are highly concentrated in Q3. But all the benefits will actually be much more evenly distributed, you know, uh, over time. So that means you're going to see some rebuilding efforts in Q4, and then you're going to see some rebuilding efforts uh, uh, 
going through uh, uh, Q1 next year. Okay. Uh, so which means the benefits are not that significant, you know, uh, for any particular quarter. But in the in the long run, it's a growth neutral. Okay. Uh, but you know, here I think what is more positive is actually for all sales because the uh, insurance companies have already reported over eighty thousand vehicles being damaged by the flood. Okay, and also home prices. All those home prices will have be will have to be uh, replaced uh, after the flood. Okay, so this will actually contribute to uh, 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 zero point three percent to zero point. Or half percent in Chinese annualized auto sales. So this is a positive. Home plus durables, cars will have be, will have to be replaced, but consumption will not. You know, I've seen this with the COVID-19 shock in China. We don't have uh, a pent up consumption. Okay. Now I think this will be the same for uh, for the flood. Well, also quick on the on the COVID uh, on the latest uh, uh, Delta variant outbreak in China. The point I that, that I want to make is that this Delta variant outbreak is different than the you know the uh, small outbreak we had uh, early this year. This is definitely different because Delta variant is much more uh, 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 spreading uh, much more quickly, and uh, the initial reports and detection of uh, the breach of uh, of local airport in Nanjing has been delayed. That's why you know uh, the res- official response to this latest outbreak has been also delayed. Okay, right now we already well just within two weeks we already have 17 provinces, mostly with provincial capital cities, have reporting uh, 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 infected cases uh, related to the Nanjing Airport. Okay, the entire summer traveling in China has been pretty much shut down. Today we had a several. Very popular uh, tourism provinces like uh, Yunnan province and uh, Hainan province, they already shut down their tourist, tourism spots. And also in Beijing, uh, we, Beijing has cut off all the inbound, outbound traffic. Okay. Uh, so this outbreak, I think, will cost 2% Chinese nominal GDP. Uh, well, you know, this will be like uh, 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 10% to 20% of uh, the damage China has experienced. Uh, back in uh, back in the uh, uh, early last year, okay. So this will be very significant impact on China. Of course, uh, then uh, on the next slide, you know, you can see just two charts showing uh, you know how how cities have been uh, implementing lockdowns, right? So there's traffic congestion index for some cities, select cities affected by Delta variant lockdowns and floods. And also, you know, this, uh, uh, the second chart is, you know, our estimate for the potential impacts on Chinese growth from flood and uh, Delta variant, especially for Q3 this year. So we're expecting that we're going to loss somewhere around 2.3% or 2.5% uh, uh, nominal GDP from flood and, and Delta variant. I think, you know, we need, uh, this is a, this, this impact March, uh, is much, is much profound. Than what market are expecting, okay, especially for consumption. So now let's turn to the next slide. Um, so yeah, here I want to uh, uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, PBOC's policy reaction, and uh, also uh, I'll talk about uh, uh, some a little bit positive spin for China's public market next year. Okay. So first of all, you know, for for PBOC's policy. Re- Response. You know, we have triple R cost. 
what I've been calling for uh, Chinese economy is actually uh, shifting to uh, 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 to a passive passive stocking back in June this year. Okay. Like, which means you know you're you already begin to see a slowdown in downstream uh, sector demand. Okay. Then PBOC uh, cut report in July. That was clear, uh, uh, that was absolutely a response to this expected uh, 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 slowdown in industrial demand. But now, you know, we'll have what we'll have this new up, this latest uh, Delta variant outbreak. You know, those two things are perfect elements for PBOC's react, easing reaction function, which means you know, there's no way for PDLC to further tighten its monetary policy. PDLC can only use more the second half this year. You know, whenever you have this is kind of a uh, COVID-19 lockdown, uh, you know, when you have a flood, PDLC will have to increase its relenting program to help SMEs and uh, you know, uh, uh, retailers and, uh, you know, people have been affected, households have been affected by, uh, by the flood and the COVID-19 lockdown. So, now the point is that Whenever you see PBOC begin a triple R cut cycle, this is, well, yeah, some people will say, well, this is a kind of easing efforts, right, uh, from PBOC. This is, a, this is a positive for capital markets, for bonds markets. But the, but the whole point is not this. The whole point is that whenever PBOC begin a cut triple R cut, this basically is official conf- confirmation that they have more knowledge and information that the economy is actually going to turn into a cyclical slowdown, okay, driven by slowdown industrial demand, you know, probably, you know, from, in this case, of course, from probably market, you know, from this is unexpected natural disasters, okay. So this is a confirmation of cyclical slowdown. That's why, you know, we have become bearish on copper because, you know, if you look at throughout history, even even going back to uh, 2000, every single cycle for PBOC chip art cuts, this never been uh, a good news for copper prices. In the last two cycles of triple R cost by PBOC, we saw copper prices actually down on average by 30% to 40%. Okay, this time probably will be different because, you know, we still have overseas demand for copper. There's still a lot of positive stories from EVs, from other renewable energy, and from semiconductor. Those, those, those probably will be helping uh, 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 to support uh, some copper demand. But I think the, cri- the critical issue is that the Chinese problem market is not going to be part of this copper demand. Okay, I think that will be very critical in this case. So we're, you know, we're uh, we we have turned bearish on copper prices in this case. But well, finally, uh, I want to talk about you know uh, our outlook for property market next year because this is a, a very important project going on here. Back in March this year, we wrote a piece about this Chinese new policy of rental uh, housing uh, initiative. Of course, this product has been very slow throughout this year, but it's going to accelerate in the second half of this year. Okay, Because, well, but I think the actual activity will only really take place next year. Because I want to talk about this. Uh, this is an overall story here. Is that, like I mentioned, there has been a, a very important uh, soul searching by the Communist Party uh, in the last two years. In the last two years, now they're shifting their policy priorities to social equality. Like I said, when we see social equality, the biggest problems are, you know, sectors that are supposed to provide public services has been highly commercialized in the last two decades. 
Now they want to reverse this trend, right? So property is definitely part of that. And so what is going to happen is that, you know, they want to return back to the old central plan economy for, for the public market, which means public housing will have to become a major component of new supply in China. Okay. So by October 1st this year, all local governments are required to submit their own proposal for construction targets for public housing in the next five years. Okay. All the first, all the second tier cities now require that minimum 30% new supply starting from next year for, for property, but have to come from public housing. For first, second tier cities, you know, uh, most of those cities have promised 40% new supply for property starting from next year or coming from public housing. So there is a renationalization of Chinese property market, and this trend is, can, will not be reversed. Okay, this is something that we have to pay attention here. That. So, well, so public housing will be a bigger, will be a very important uh, construction construction initiative starting from next year. You know, we did run some estimate. You know, we realized that there's a serious gap. You know, for the supply of uh, of public rental housing, and uh, you know, in the next five years, every year Chinese will at least build two million rental housing units, rental housing to meet their demand. You know, I think this is the minimum because, uh, you know, if you really want to close off the gap, you, you probably need to build 3 million units a year in the next five years. Okay. Well, so this will be, if this is the case, this rental housing construction will actually contribute to 6% to 10% of Chinese housing use costs starting from next year. So this is positive news. But, like I said, you know, Public housing will become more important, will contribute positively to uh, housing use starts, but the slowdown from commercial property construction, I think that will be much more profound. So public housing by itself will not, alone cannot offset the slowdown from, uh, you know, from new construction, from uh, commercial uh, property markets. Okay. So yeah, I'll, yeah, uh, well, so, uh, for the last, uh, for the last page of the slide, uh, we had uh, some estimate about uh, another another uh, initiative that President Xi is going to launch, uh, which is about rural revitalization, especially on rural infrastructure. Well, this is also about social equality. Uh, and uh, then the second chart is actually is our estimate about uh, the share of policy rental over total new starts. You know how you know uh, how that how that is going to evolve in the next five years. Okay, so I'll stop here. <laughs> Yeah, thank you very much, Song. Thank you, Will. Um, and we'll go to Q&A in a minute. Uh, I remind everyone you can ask questions. Just type them into the, the question box, uh, submit that question, and we'll try and uh, deal with a number of them. And I think there's a, a lot of topics uh, we can cover today. Uh, I'm just going to spend a minute talking through some of the commodity implications here from, uh, from China and what's been said. Uh, yes, we do think, obviously, uh, there is a... Um, a cyclical slowdown coming through that is weighing on demand. And bear in mind, we've seen some very strong demand in the first half of the year that is actually starting to fade. In fact, if we analyze steel, copper, uh, aluminum demand, they are now starting to trend negative year on year. That's off a high basis, a, a much higher level than we might have expected two years ago. Uh, bear in mind, it has been a very metals-intensive recovery, but actually it's starting to slow. And I would highlight again, some of the indicators like uh, wire and cable fabricator operating rates, they're only 80% this year. They were 100% last year. And if you look at the reasons why, 
high prices, fewer high prices, you are getting a bit of a, a buyer pushback. Now, on the decarbonisation side, it certainly caused a lot of volatility in iron ore. We had the iron ore price down at 7% today in, uh, in Singapore. Um, and that is on that reverse side. So Song mentioned it, and it's slightly different, I think, if you don't mind me saying so, Song, from the slides, because the slides, uh, I think when you prepared them, you were, you were saying, well, maybe steel production cuts might be reversed. It does look like steel production cuts are coming through. Now, what I would highlight is, um, as Song mentioned, there's no way production is going to be down year on year. That's now impractical. I do think the rhetoric will change that exports will be down year on year. That means Chinese steel exports. And, and bear in mind, in decarbonisation, there's no point in consuming carbon to make a, a product that then you're, you're shipping overseas um, in its commodity form. So with that, I'd be expecting Chinese steel exports to be as low as 30 million tonnes annualised in the second half from 74 annualised in the first half. That means less deflationary pressure in global steel and it will support global steel pressure. Um, just on um, uh, on the coal side, clearly it, it probably is the tightest market at the moment in China, and that's both Met and thermal coal. On the Met side, the closure of the Mongolian border has been an issue, and uh, that is it's very unusual in the Met coal price rally that Chinese price goes above the international price. We've seen that for, for much of this year so far. Uh, on the thermal side, well, it really is the inflationary pressure coming through, and uh, yeah, it is interesting now that the Chinese government is looking to build more strategic coal reserves. So you will, I think, see, as I saw mentioned, an opening up of coal capacity in the short term. Um, longer term, yeah, thermal coal, uh, personally, in my view, I think it might actually decline in China. I know some uh, thinks it will grow, but certainly it's, it's, it's not really a growth market and obviously being phased out uh, internationally. Just one thing I want to do, and then, then I'll come to, to a question for you, Song, on this. Um, uh, we have been getting questions now on what happens if China does uh, go through uh, a more intense lockdown again and to try and control the Delta variant. I mean, obviously, there are reports now of, um, of uh, passenger trains to Beijing being stopped and, uh, and highways being shut. You, in commodity land, you would, would then want exposure to the, those which are reliant on Chinese logistics because that's where the pressure would come. So you're looking at alumina, again you're looking at coal, that would be an area where you might see some pressure, and obviously there's a read to aluminium from that as well. Um, on the other side, obviously demand for many of the other refined metals would come under pressure, however we would be expecting less scrap availability, which maybe supports the raw materials a little bit more. Um, with that song, I do want to transition, I mean, what is the view in China at the moment on the on the Delta variant, on the potential for uh, local lockdowns, anything further. Uh, what, what are you hearing? Yeah, well, uh, this Delta variant now is getting pretty serious in China because, like you mentioned, this outbreak is very different than what we have experienced early this year because the, the, the pace of transmission is just, just very rapid. Okay, And also, uh, uh, the initial detection of uh, you know uh, the leak at Nanjing Airport has been uh, very late, has been very much delayed. So that's why you know almost all major cities in China has have reported uh, infected cases. So officials are actually they're talking about uh, they can manage to contain this uh, Delta variant within four to six weeks. So that means you know throughout the entire August we're going to leave with this uh, Delta variant in China. So right now, you know, uh, the local responses has been very excessive. Okay, right now in Beijing, they have shut down uh, all the all the offline education, you know, uh, uh, all the uh, all the cinema and all all amusement parks 
uh, 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 in China and everyone to come into any public places you have checked out, they'll check your health barcode because, you know, just two weeks ago, well, just, well, just last week, they stopped, they were, already stopped checking this. Also, I think this Delta variant is also very, is much more dangerous in China because in the last month, I have traveled to several cities uh, in China. I traveled to uh, Fujian province. Unfortunately, uh, I didn't go to Xiamen, which is uh, have just just reported uh, a new cases. And uh, uh, but I traveled to uh, Changsha, uh, which has which has reported new cases. Uh, you know what I saw on the ground. You know, just uh, two weeks ago, is that only ten percent of people wear masks. Okay, even in the most in the busiest uh, commercial district, only ten percent people wear masks. And when you walk into shopping mall, no one asks for your health uh, barcode. You know, no one, no one checks your masks. So you see, there has been a lot of uh, people have basically ignored uh, COVID risk. You know, even even two weeks ago. So that that will make this Delta uh, variant uh, transmission become a much more dangerous. Uh, in China this time. So, well, basically, right now, all the, uh, all the, all the, basically, all, all the air traveling has been suspended. You know, if you look at flight cancellation rate and Nanjing Airport, Beijing, uh, uh, you know, it's all about 50%. For Nanjing Airport, it's 100%. You know, for some other cities, 70%. And in Beijing, Shanghai, well, even in Shanghai, now the cancellation rate is about 50%. You know, uh, Beijing basically has Suspended all inboard, all inbound and outbound traffic, you know, flights, uh, uh, trains, uh, so, uh, also highway. So we're actually into, uh, we're actually going into a semi lockdown and this, this lockdown is different than what happened earlier this year because, you know, like I mentioned, almost all provincial capital cities in China have been, uh, have, have, have introduced some kind of a semi lockdown. Okay. This is devastating for consumption. For retailers, okay, this is devastating for housing sales because housing showrooms, probably showrooms, have to be closed, have to be closed, uh, and this is a devastating for Chinese tourism because this is actually a summer, uh, summer vacation for school, uh, for school children. So uh, two weeks ago, when I was at Beijing Airport for traveling. You know, there's a lot of uh, uh, school children with their parents or teachers will actually for summer vacation. Uh, the airports were actually crowded in Beijing two weeks ago. So now all those traveling plans were canceled. So uh, this is a, a very serious case in China. However, you know, for the, for the commodity side, first of all, is I think for this this different than last year, which is the product the product production side uh, has not been affected much. Okay, so demand for commodities is still there. Uh, but, uh, you know, well, like you mentioned, transportation, yes, logistics has been, uh, has been uh, affected more, uh, uh, more for commodities because, uh, you know, when we had a flood in Henan province, Zhengzhou, which is the provincial capital of Henan province, that is a major transportation hub for commodities in China, okay. And also Nanjing, uh, Wuhan, also now, you know, we have Wuhan is uh, is going to a semi lockdown again. Uh, I mean, those are major transportation uh, kind of uh, waterway transportation for commodities in China as well. So, well, the effects has not been that clear at this point. But uh, you know, uh, 
I see there is a major disruption for domestic uh, logistics, but at the same time, the production side has not been affected much. Yeah. So I suppose. Well, yeah. Well, just quick. Well, 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 just quick clarification. Why it took my mind a lot bit about Anwar? Uh, because just today I had I had a conversation with with a contact. Also, you know, this is a this is a, a editorial coming from a Xinhua news agency just two hours ago. There, there is a clarification about you know the Public Bureau's call for backpedaling on you know on decolonization campaign because the Xinhua news agency mentioned that very specifically. We mentioned that co-production. You know, we should not implement uh, political style, political movement style uh, of production costs for coal. We, uh, the Xinhua News Agency did not mention steel. So that's why, you know, I, I turned in my mind about, uh, about this was steel production cost at last minute. <clears throat> okay. No, no, and, and uh, but, but, but given what's happening in the market, so that, that, that makes sense. Coal's cool, cool a tight market, and, uh, and it, it's crucially tight, you would say, at the, at the current time, with actually record prices in China as of today. Steel, obviously, I mean, uh, there's a lot of stuff still being exported. Um, and, and we'll have a question for you in a minute or two on, on, on the R&B and, and the bond market, but just at the moment, I suppose, just to think about what happens now. Uh, cyclical slowdown. We've got um, we've got problems with the lockdown coming through now. Normally, this is when we'd expect more fiscal support. Uh, so again, we know there'll be some post-flood rebuilding. How, how will that be funded? And, and what what should we all be looking for in terms of fiscal support starting to come through, both in terms of um, where it will come from, in terms of indicators, and in terms of timing? Um, sure, I, I I can start on that one. Um, but I, I would start by by saying that. Even if we see an acceleration of, of uh, fiscal activity, meaning um, greater issuance of special purpose local government bonds, um, you know, if we go back to the beginning of the year, even if they met their full quotas for full year 2021, the fiscal impulse was going to be neutral at best, right? And so uh, uh, if they are able to accelerate issuance and actual spending, you know, you basically get closer to zero, but but that's it. Uh, so, you know, I think we, we, we're we not fundamentally more bullish on, on the fiscal outlook just because the Politburo mentioned it. If you look at the mechanics of, of, of where the spending is going to come from, as I said at the beginning, you know, special purpose bonds, the incremental amounts every year have been small relative to the incremental amount coming through from government fund expenditure, which is linked to land sales. Land sales are slowing. They're going to, as Song mentioned, we expect them to, to maintain these controls on, on property. This is going to affect land sales. So that fiscal channel is much larger than whatever would come through for special purpose bonds. So the fiscal impulse is still negative. I don't see that that's going to be a very effective way of dealing with the downturn if things really start to accelerate the downside. And I think, you know, COVID, Delta COVID in China could be a game changer in, in that respect. That, you know, as Song mentioned, uh, um, this is now, uh, controls are in place in almost all provincial capitals. Uh, I have to think that, that we're um, maybe at, at the at the bottom of the curve here for new cases. You know, I think China will control it better than others, but but still, there's a cycle here, uh, and, and the cycle has impacts on real activity. At the end of the day, uh, you know, this gives them a rationale to change their stance on credit. I think there's only if we look at this from a cyclical perspective, uh, historically over the past 20 years, there's only one thing that that's turned around the cycle in China, and that's a credit impulse. It's not fiscal; it's credit. Uh, now, that, that's just the long-term cycle, long-term cycles. If we add in short-term impact of COVID and, and where we are in the current cycle in China, 
uh, in my opinion, there's only one thing that's going to turn things around if it really starts to go south, and that's credit. It's not fiscal. Uh, and so I think this potentially gives them a rationale by the end of the year to ease up on these uh, credit targets because uh, they, they realize that there's only one thing that, that really fixes things or, or really stabilizes economic conditions. And, again, that's credit. Now, it's not necessarily consistent with their overall agenda for for uh, structural adjustments and, and trying to reorient uh, uh you know, sources of activity and growth in the economy, but at the end of the day, you know, they have to be practical. And so when push comes to shove, and it looks like uh, we're going to get to shove relatively quickly, um, you know, I think that they're going to come up with some sort of maybe targeted uh, credit support for uh, for new investment for other areas which are more linked to the structural agenda. Now, public policy housing uh, is just property investment. It's it's not commercial, so therefore it's structural, therefore it's it's politically more acceptable. That, I think they're going to push on that hard. Uh, they, they say they're not going to push, use property as, as short-term stimulus. Uh, realistically, the economy is built for for for, uh, for the property sector and everything related to it. So, uh, I, I think they're going to have to use the, the cover that, that Delta COVID provides for a shift in in, in, um, in in the policy stance that involves more property and more credit. Uh, more uh, targeted investment um, in order to, to stabilize the expectations and activity if it really starts to go south. Well, well, just a quick comment about timing for fiscal stimulus. Uh, well, first of all, is there will be fiscal stimulus, okay? Uh, but, uh, but, well, the, the, uh, the Positive Bureau meeting has made that very clear that they want to see uh, fiscal construction activities for, for infrastructure to pick up by, uh, by the end of this year and early next year. Okay, so then if you uh, if you uh, if you do a backtracking calculation on this, is that you know normally what when local governments got uh, money, it would take them three months uh, to start projects. Okay, so if a policy bureau now want to see fiscal activities by the end of this year, early next year, which means you know. By uh, well, by September this year, October this year, you're going to see uh, there'll be acceleration of uh, local government bond issues. Okay, and that's why you know then they'll take three months for uh, you know for physical activities for for infrastructure to uh, to pick up uh, before the end of by the end of this year and early next year. Also, there's a very important political event coming up next year, early next year, because in February next year we're going to have this Winter Olympics. Okay, this is a this is one of the most important political projects for presidency. Okay, so uh, you know they they will prefer uh, stabilization of economic growth uh, by that time. So that's just a so that's a timing. So uh, also today, just today, uh, the state council has begun to solicit uh, bond issues demand from local governments for next year. Okay, so they set the deadline for submission. For lunch, uh, for bond issuance, uh, a demand for local governments for next year will be October 1st, uh, this year. So, which means, you know, they're, they're going to, you know, as you know, this year they stopped this front end issuance, uh, for special local government bonds this year, right? Well, that means, you know, this will change next year. Uh, starting from next year, they will also, you know, they will resume their old operation, which is they will do, uh, front loaded bond issuance early next year. But like I said, you know, like Will mentioned, you know, the size of this fiscal stimulus don't don't have too much hope on this because the majority funding will come from central government and a special local government bonds. 
Central government funding for infrastructure projects only covers 5% of Chinese infrastructure investment. Okay, very small amount of money. <clears throat> well, yeah, perfect. Thank, thank you, Tom. Um, I, I want to ask, I mean, what, one thing, of course, that's been quite stable actually over the last few months has been the RMB. I want to ask your, your outlook there. And also uh, on, uh, on the bond market, uh, I know you have some views on that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'll start with RMB. Uh, you know, we are, we're, we're still bearish, uh, for, uh, for, for RMB exchange rate. Uh, well, for, for, for several reasons. First one is the fundamental reason, right? Like I said, you know, November, December this year, we're going to see the Chinese inventory cycle is turning into a destocking cycle, right? So the slowdown is going to be further confirmed in November and December. Also, you know, another, another, uh, Indicator I recommend uh, everyone to look at is that you look at China's PMI, manufacturer PMI index, right? Uh, you look at the sub-index of raw material inventory, then you look at uh, uh, the sub-index of finished goods inventory, okay? These two inventories are very important indicators to capture Chinese major inflection points for Chinese business cycle because you know, when, when, when the economy is expanding, then what's going to happen is that you're going to see elevated uh, raw material inventory. And you can see, uh, a drawdown, a decline of finished goods inventory because you have very strong downstream demand, right? Upstream, upstream, uh, sectors are actually in full operation, so they're building up their raw material inventory. But downstream, there's a very strong demand, uh, you know, from households, uh, uh, from corporates, uh, from, uh, uh, different projects. Then you see a drawdown of finished goods inventory, okay? But when you're in the economic slowdown, then what's going to happen is that you're going to have a decline of raw material inventory. At the same time, you're going to, you're going to see a build-up of finished goods inventory. So this is a, the exactly case right now. You know, if you look at Chinese manufacturer PMI right now, you know, last two months, we're, we're already beginning to see a decline of raw material inventory. At the same time, we'll see a, a build-up of uh, finished goods inventory, which basically reflects a weaker demand from, uh, you know, from, from downstream. So this is a fundamental uh, uh, factor about on the exchange rate. Second is, you know, I want to talk about, uh, the, the regulatory, uh, crackdown on, on tech companies. You know, the Chinese officials, well, within, uh, in the next three months, the Chinese officials are going to introduce new regulations on VIE structure. You know, how Chinese companies with VIE structure can go abroad for a public listing. Okay. So, which, which basically means that, you know, all investment uh, in those venture capital, you know, uh, 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 or, or other kind of investment funds, in those high-tech, uh, Chinese companies that, that actually in the service sector or public goods, uh, or kind of, uh, related to public goods provider, you know, you are, you have no way to cash out, you know, uh, within the next three to five years. Okay. Uh, so this is, will be a very negative for, you know, for private capital investment. Uh, in, not to mention, uh, sentiment shock to foreign capital. So in this case, I just don't see why, you know, people want to, uh, put money into the Chinese capital markets, especially, you know, for venture capitals, uh, uh to invest in Chinese tech companies. Okay. So I see this will be more, uh, pressure on Chinese, uh, capital outflows, especially from those foreign investments. Well, even for domestic private investments. Okay. Uh, the third factor is that, you know, August, September, this will be uh, the school season for Chinese students that, you know, studying abroad. Uh, 
PBOC deputy governor, also the head of state. Uh, last month, he made a comment. He said he was expecting RMB to uh, to weaken a little bit as the capital this year because, you know, Chinese students are actually will going back to school overseas. And this will contribute to uh, what will, will partially normalize the Chinese service deficit. Okay. So uh, in this case, you know, look at fundamental, look at this regulatory crackdown. And especially uncertainties with the regulatory uh, crackdown because, uh, you know, like yesterday, there's this uh, speculation that they're going to crack down on hard liquor consumption and, uh, and, you know, they're going to crack down on coffee consumption. And today, you know, there's speculation that they're going to crack down on, on domestic dairy uh, uh, products. So, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty with Chinese regulation at this point. Basically, I see there is a competition from different agencies actually competing. Uh, for crackdown, you know, uh, 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 you know, on their own industries because they see there is where the political wind is blowing. Okay, so everyone has become more politically uh, uh, optimistic, optimistic in this case. So that's why, you know, uh, I, I'm still bearish about Chinese army exchange especially if you think about all this, is, uh, all this is the high winds with the Chinese fundamental and the regulatory uncertainties risks. The army exchange has been particularly has been particularly resist resilient so far, right? I think that's that 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 that's just that that's just that's that not add up with what really happened uh so far. If you look at R and B children against the current basket, it's actually touching the upper bound, uh which is uh which is ninety nine. So that's why, you know, for the for the second half of this year, I you know I'm still bearish about R and B children. I think we're gonna see three percent or five percent depreciation depreciation for R B Against the dollar. Also, you know, uh, quickly on, on bond market, we have, you know, I have a very, uh, uh, I'm a very bullish about Chinese bond market in the long run because I see there is a cyclic decline in Chinese natural interest, Chinese natural interest rates because this is also related to this uh, regulatory crackdown. You know, if you think about in the last two decades, well, especially in the last two years, uh, well, last five years. High-risk taking private capital in China has piled into e-commerce and public service sectors because they're seeking higher return, right? Because only in public service sector you can have, you can report 30%, 60%, 100% growth on annual basis, right? Then you can cash out in three or five years by bringing the company going public, right? But now that channel is totally blocked right now, right? Officials want direct private capital to invest into lower return, highly pro-cyclical manufacturer, high-tech, hard-tech companies. Okay. So, I mean, private capitals will be very cautious because this is very, uh, this is a low return business. Okay. And that's why, you know, you'll begin to see that Chinese investors become much more, uh, uh, can much less risk taking in this case. Okay. So, this will be, uh, this will support the cyclic decline of natural interest rates in China. So I'm a, so I do have a very bullish view about Chinese, Chinese, uh, Chinese bond markets, you know, long run. But also in the short term, you know, like I mentioned, when I have flood, when I have this uncertainty with Delta variants outbreak, there's no way for PBLC to tighten its market policy. It's, it can't, it, it has to be uh, more accommodated with market policy. You know, if you think what happened in last year, when we have accommodated market policy, right? Who actually benefited from this? Bond markets, equity markets, and property markets, right? 
So, of course, now there's a very strong regulatory crackdown uh, uh, on public market. So the money cannot flow into the public market. Well, just a couple hours just a couple hours ago, they think you could use new restrictions on public purchase. Okay. So that's why money will uh, uh, flow into bond markets. Uh, also, you know, for other markets, yes, we do have very bullish uh, other markets for selected sectors. You know, uh, renewable energy, uh, you know, some consumer staples, but um, not, not, you know, not for the entire couple markets, uh, agri markets, because you have a lot of re- regulatory uh, uncertainties, right? So that's why, even in the short term, I'm, you know, I'm still bullish for bond markets. Uh, August, September, we're going to see some kind of a market market chatters about, you know, this is an acceleration for government bond markets. That's probably uh, uh, will probably hurt. The, uh, the market sentiments a little bit, but whatever happens, whenever that, that happens, I would highly recommend people to buy the bit because, uh, you know, this is going to be a, 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 a great uh, a bull market for bonds in the second half of this year. And also, like I mentioned, there's a second decline in Chinese natural interest rates. Thank you. So, guys, we've got a, a few questions coming up. I think we'll bucket them into three different things and I'll, I'll take them together. Um, First of all, uh, on the D stock uh, that you're mentioning uh, around the manufacturing side towards the end of the year, how does the situation with international supply chains, i.e. the big logistical problems that we have, how do they play into that thought process? Or does it change? Well, actually, the, uh, the, yeah. yeah, sure. Well, the global supply chain actually has has caused uh, a packing restock in China, actually. Because uh, you know, want to talk to exporters. What happens that everyone is saying, you know, we have we we took orders and we manufactured the products, but we cannot find uh, uh, the shipping. We cannot find the train. So we are actually we're actually trying to find uh, 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 storage places to, uh, you know, to put those finished products. Okay, and that that has uh, in the last in the last couple of months, at least a certain point that. Chinese exporters have become very cautious in terms of taking new orders from uh, their foreign clients. Because it's that, you know, even if we can finish this order, but we cannot ship them out, and uh, eventually you know, this will become a f- financial burden for us because we have to keep those uh, inventory. Also, you know, we'll face the risk that we're going to be fined by our clients, right, uh, foreign clients. So... At this point, the global supply chain disruption has been causing the passive restocking in China. And uh, that's why, but when Chinese exporters become more cautious taking new orders, and when the massive uh, demand, especially you know, from product sector, uh, decelerates further, uh, you know, we're going to see manufacturers begin to destock uh, by November, December. In that case, that, I mean, that basically is uh, that's you know that's just a more re- more of a reflection of a slowdown from uh, industrial demand. Perfect. Um, so we have another question through on the the property side, and the um, question is: Is the dynamic uh, currently underway with land sales imply simply short term? Uh, is that short term cyclical, or are there any structural long term tax policies uh, in play? <coughs> Mm. Um, I'm, I'm, I'll start uh, there and then, then give it back to Song. You know, I think w- one thing that's very important for looking at the future of land sales is not just about um, how much leverage developers are able to take on, 
but really uh, the probability that uh, enough cities are going to cap uh, how much um, uh, developers can spend on land sales relative to their previous year revenues. So, for example, revenues for the property sector last year were about, let's call it 17 trillion. Uh, and so if you take uh, a cap at somewhere between 30 and 40% of revenues, which developers can spend on land sales uh, in the following year, uh, that implies that a number which is basically a 15 to 20% drop compared to 2022 levels. So, in other words, um, you're essentially going to cap, um, how much, uh, land can be, can be purchased based on property sale revenues. Now, as, as we've mentioned, you know, uh, incremental property supply is probably going to come from the public sector, not from commercial developers on the margins this year. Developer, commercial developer contributions are going to shrink over time. We expect the revenues to shrink over time as well. That means their ability to buy land also shrinks over time. So, uh, to me, that's a, a, more of a structural negative if, if this if these regulations become national. Uh, and so we're, we're, what I just described is aggregating from what a couple of cities have done already. Uh, and so if, if that becomes something of like a national benchmark that says that over time, there's, there's not much, uh, room to the upside for land sales. And, and the cycle is going to be more muted because it can be more tied to commercial developer revenues. Uh, and, and, and that's also going to be a function of, uh, smaller land banks, um, weaker access to credit, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I, I think there, there's, is a policy push to reduce the reliance of the economy on uh, commercial property activity, which obviously involves land sales. Now, land sales for public sector housing activity may actually increase, but the you know the the the, the price and the cost basis there is going to be much lower than I think than commercial developers pay. So, I think the longer term outlook for for land sales is is uh, not necessarily a positive one. Uh, great, thank you. Yeah, well, yeah, just quick addition to Will's comment. Well, you know, I agree. This is going to be a structural issue. Uh, uh, Lunch is going to be uh, falling structurally. Uh, but also, there there is a cyclical component. Because if you look at Chinese land sales, it has a very interesting pattern is that, you know, it has a four-year, I mean, from trial to trial, it has a four-year uh, interval followed by a two-year Two-year interval, then followed by another four-year interval uh, for uh, cycle for land purchase. So right now we are actually uh, approaching the end at the bottom. Uh, this is a, a two-year uh, cycle for land purchase. So this, well, this uh, this bottom, uh, you know, this bottom probably will be uh, will be reached uh, around sometime next year. Then that will be followed a rebound of land market, a uh, land purchase uh, for another four-year cycle. But like we'll mention. You know, the, uh, the entire cycle is actually going into a cycle of decline. Thank you, Tom. Um, there's a question coming as well, which is probably one better answered by me. What, what are the metal demand implications and differential between policy rental housing starts and commercial housing starts? The answer is very little. Uh, in, in effect, they're made of the same materials. You could argue that uh, policy rental, maybe you won't have as much smart facades on there. So, in, uh, uh, but again, given the emphasis on building efficiency and carbon reduction, actually, uh, I, I don't think there's going to be much change. The one thing I would say, naturally, uh, policy rental housing often slightly smaller, and we do look at things on a floor space basis when we're thinking about uh, consumption, particularly of things like steel and cement. So a little bit lower intensity, but I mean, uh, uh, to be honest, we're talking we're talking single digit percentiles rather than anything else in terms of the uh, the intensity change.
Um, and I think the last question we have uh, is around policies. Again, it comes back to almost where we started on, on decarbonisation. Um, there's the export VAT rebate on steel has been removed. Can you see a situation where there's an export tax, for example, on, on, on carbon products? Um, and I'm talking here steel and maybe even into things like uh, uh, fertilisers as well, which is another area we're getting, we're getting some questions at the moment. Are we going to see a restriction on things like uh, urea exports or other fertilisers, if you have any views there? Yeah, so, yeah, uh, well, I think, I think China will, you know, China will uh, levy a uh, uh, carbon tax on, on metal exports, for sure. Uh, well, I mean, even for steel, yes, you know, uh, you know, like Colin just mentioned, that uh, China has to remove a uh, tax rebate for uh, for steel uh, uh, products. But also, China has to halt, uh, steel export tariff twice this year, right? One is in, uh, in May 1st, and another one is actually just last week, right? So they actually hacked uh, uh, export tax on particular steel products from 20% to 40%, right? So... Uh, also, there have been a comment, I think very interesting, from PBOC's governor, uh, uh, Gong. You know, it's very interesting because it, it, it is PBOC official comments on decarbonization because what he said was, he said, you know, when we, you know, when we pursue decarbonization, you know, we have to make carbon products more expensive because, you know, otherwise you cannot persuade people to, you know, to use more decarbonized products, right? So that's why, you know, that's very interesting because even a PDOC governor knows that the Chinese officials are going to levy tax on carbon products, okay? Uh, also, you know, after, after you got comment, there has been NDRC officials saying that, you know, for, uh, for household electricity, we are setting the not as a commodity right now, okay? But... It, but electricity consumption should have a component uh, of, of being a, a commodity, okay? So that's why, you know, they, they may even hike uh, carbon tax. They, I mean, they may even levy carbon tax on domestic electricity uh, prices. Thank you, Song. Um, just one very, very final question. I mean, uh Given, given what you're expecting to see come through in terms of policy, what are we looking at uh, for uh, GDP growth rate in the second half of the year? Um, well, let's see. I mean, the the, uh, the line that everyone, all the domestic policy advisors and, and uh, onshore analysts are putting into their research these days says that, you know, the two-year average is below, is 5.5%, which is below PBOC's potential growth rate of 5.7%. Um, now, that says that uh, they want to um, kind of boost uh, trend growth and activity, especially heading into 2022. Uh, I, I remain kind of more bearish about their ability to do that because uh, unless they start to release more more credit and kind of give way on, on some of the more restricted aspects of, of the overall policy stance, I don't believe that fiscal impulse is going to be uh, net positive. Uh, it still has a lot of weakness. So, you know, I think for the second half of the year, uh, we'll probably stay in, in uh, with a five handle. I think the target for next year will probably also have a five handle because if, if they're going to re rely on these, you know, PBOC estimated structural growth rates or potential growth rates, 
Um, you know, I, I think the trend is 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 clearly been been falling, and I think we're down into the into the five percent range uh, for the next uh, two to three years. Wonderful. <clears throat> Well, Song, thank you so much. Um, thank you very much, everyone, for, for dialing in today. Uh, there will be a replay available if you want anything you wanted to, to listen to again. If you do have any follow-up questions, uh, please do just uh, send them through to me. Uh, thank you very much, and enjoy the rest of your day.